Thank you, Lord, for our worship that has brought us into your throne room. And now we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. May the Holy Spirit of God take the Holy Word of God home to our hearts with great power and clarity so that we will love you and we will be made like you. Be honored and glorified in our worship today, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. The famous novelist, Ernest Hemingway, uh, was in World War I and almost killed in battle. The doctors had to pull out 237 pieces of shrapnel from his scarred body. And that close-to-death life experience radically changed him. But it was that experience from which the formula for his novels was created. Take a good person, put them into a life-and-death situation, bring them close to death, and then you will reveal their true dimensions. You'll see what they are really like. And it was Hemingway's contention that trials and difficulties in life don't make us or break us. They reveal us. And I tell you, the biblical character of Job is a Hemingway-type hero. For here's the best of people put into the worst of situations. And what happens is this. It doesn't necessarily make him or break him. It reveals him. And that's why the trials are like fire and our lives are like gold. And the fire consumes the dross and refines the gold and reveals by God's grace what's really there. Open your Bibles to the book of Job. And we are now in Job chapter 2. And I simply have to say this. Here we go again. Job, who was devastated at the end of chapter 1 and yet still found trusting in God, you would think he had enough. You would think that maybe there was some reprieve and we have no idea of the time period between the two. The scriptures just tell us on another day, like the day in chapter 1, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. The angels, the most powerful creatures under God who are governing uh, regions all over the planet in charge of different places and under control, Scripture says Satan comes along with them, just like he did in chapter 1. But the difference is the word present. For here now, Satan presents himself. It seems to me, at least as I conjure up in my mind, that picture of a person going into the presence of a foreign king with somewhat of the pomp and circumstance and certainly royal etiquette due to the office of the king. And I could even see Satan coming before God and bowing as one should before royalty. Maybe in a mocking fashion. He's there as one of the powerful leaders. Now he may be crashing in on a meeting he's not invited to, but John chapter 12 or John chapter 21 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. 
He is the God of this age. And so here he is among the other powerful leaders. And remember this, Satan's a poor loser. (laughs) He lost in chapter 1. But for him, that's just the first round. And he is coming back for more. So here he is before the Lord. The next verse, we find something similar to chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Now we know that God never asks a question to gain information because this is the same question he asks in chapter 1. This is just a, a question more like, tell me what you've been up to. What have you been doing since the last time we met? And Satan's response is rather interesting. I've been going to and fro, roaming throughout the earth. You know, to me that sounds like a rather evasive answer. I imagine the angels are here to give a report of what they've been doing. Satan, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? Ah, just roaming around. Sounds like the answer you get from your teenager after a Friday night, right? Where have you been? Ah, just cruising. I I didn't want that kind of answer. I want some, some more specifics. But by the way, Satan is not just roaming around the earth to and fro. And as we mentioned last week, he's never been to hell. He's not consigned there. His territory is this world. And he's the prince of the power of the air. So he's at work in our universe. But we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, you know that the devil, like a prowling lion, or like a roaring lion, is prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. So he's not just casually cruising. He's not even roaming. He is prowling, looking for someone to defeat and someone to kill. Well, what about Job, God says? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him in all of the earth. And then the Lord goes into this. He's blameless. He's upright. He rejects all kinds of evil. In chapter 1, it was said that Job was the greatest man in the East. And now we add to that this concept that from God's viewpoint, he's the greatest man on the earth. And God is not given to hyperbole. When God calls something great, it is great. We overuse that word great, don't we? Oh, that was a great meal. That was a great game. I feel great. We use it to the place where it means next to nothing. Everything is great. But when God says something is great, it is great indeed. And this is simply to show that Job, indeed the greatest man on the earth, is going to experience some of the greatest woe imaginable. The Lord wants us to see very clearly that we are going to have a story, an extreme example of how bad things can happen to good people. There's no one like Job on the earth. Have you considered him? He still remains his integrity, God says to the devil. Now, this is different than what happened in chapter 1. This is after the first testing when Job lost all of his possessions due to natural disasters, due to terrorist attack, criminals coming in and stealing what belonged to him, totally destitute of all of his great belongings, and yet he still maintains 
his integrity. By the way, this is the same Hebrew word as blameless. The old Jewish rabbis had a way to describe and define integrity. I think this is really good. They said his within is just like his without. That's integrity. His within, his heart, his attitude is just like his without. We would say what you see is what you get. The person is consistent. They're not two-hearted. They're not divided in their loves. They're not hypocritical. They're not actors with a face and facade covering inside something that is not genuine. They're not masquerading. No, here is a man of integrity. And that's what we are called to be. People of integrity. He maintains his integrity even though you, devil, incited me... To ruin him without any reason. And this underscores one of the greatest themes in the book of Job. Job is being ruined without reason. I'll have theologians occasionally come to me and say no one is without sin. That's true. You can't say that Job was innocent in the technical biblical sense. That's true. But we're talking about bad things in life happening to good people and there is nothing corresponding in the life, activity, heart or behavior of Job that would bring on this type of tragedy. And I want you to know these are God's words. Devil, you're trying to get me to ruin him without reason. And this is one of the most difficult things that you and I face. Job lost all of his possessions in chapter 1. He's going to lose his personal physical health in chapter 2. But the greatest suffering of Job are not these things. As bad as they are, the greatest suffering of Job are these questions about why God? Why? Where is God when I suffer? Does he know How come he's silent? Why has God allowed this to happen? Worse yet, why did God cause this to happen? And haven't you been there in that situation in your life where you've asked those questions? Why? It's the illness you face. It's the loss of a loved one. It's the collapse of your finances. Whatever it may be. The greatest question for a believer is, why God? Ruined without any reason. But then the devil responds back with a very interesting statement. Skin for skin, a man will give everything he has for his life. I mentioned last week that the book of Job uh, for Hebrew scholars is one of the most difficult Books to translate. There are portions of scripture that they're just guessing. They have certain uh, challenges before them. And they have options before them. And here's one of the difficulties. What does skin for skin mean? And in my study, this is my best take at it. I think the next phrase, Bible always interprets the Bible. Skin is a synecdoche for life. 
It's that literary device that describes in metaphoric language, picturesque language, uh, an image for the meaning of something else. Skin stands for life. By the way, in the Old West, there was a bartering system based on skins, right? The beaver pelts, the buck skins, and so many buck skins would be worth so many beaver pelts. That was the currency. In fact, that language is even dropped down into our own language where we don't talk about buck skins, but we talk about bucks for our currency. So maybe this is the, the, the barter, the trade, the quid pro quo, something for something. Skin for skin. And if it means life, it appears that Satan is saying this. What we took away from Job the first time was more secondary. He can still build uh, uh, another family. He can still build another business. As tragic as those thing, things are, I, we haven't touched Job yet. You wouldn't let me touch him. Now let me go deeper. Let me go further. Let me touch skin. And he'll give up skin. In other words, if I touch his physical life, he'll leave his godly life. He'll give up you and he will curse you to your face. Which is what the devil wants all along. He wants to prove that no one will serve God unless they are healthy and wealthy. That horrible theology that has taken hold especially of, well I shouldn't say just of northern uh, America but it's gone to other continents as, as well even in some of the poorest countries they have this idea that if they serve God properly God has promised to give them wealth study the book of Job and you'll find out that this is absolutely not true we won't be rich and healthy and famous if we follow God that is not what he promises Job is still healthy, but now the Lord is going to touch him, strike him. See how, see how violent a word that is? Strike him, God. By the way, the devil knows that he can do nothing to Job without divine permission. We learned this last week. The devil must be allowed to do what he's going to do. And now he asks for permission and he simply wants to curse God. He wants to get Job to curse God. And that's what the devil is out to do with you. I want to cry out, Lord, no, not this time. Enough is enough. Haven't you ever felt that way when you've got a loved one? Or even yourself? And suffering seems to be added to suffering and trial upon trial and tribulation added to trouble. And you want to cry out, enough, I can't handle it anymore. And I would say for Job, Lord, don't let it happen. The guy is still dealing with post-traumatic syndrome, I'm sure. If it's been a month, if it's been a week, he lost his family. You don't easily recover from that. And now you want to touch his body and take away his health? Lord, don't do it. But what does the scripture say? And here again, some of the most sobering words in all of the Bible. God says, okay, very well then. 
get this. Job is in your hands, Satan. Wow. Well, I'm sure that this is just some unusual Old Testament situation that is never seen again in the New Testament, right? No, it's seen again in the New Testament. Isn't it interesting, when you study the Gospels, you see that it's the devil who steals the Bible, the seed of the Word of God, from the hearts of people right now who are listening. The devil or his demons are at work trying to get you not to listen, trying to get you not to understand, and certainly not to believe the Word of God. The devil steals the seed. It was the woman who had an infirmity for many years, who was crippled and kept bound by the devil. I'd never seen this before from this angle. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, we're told that the, the devil wanted to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. Do you remember that? I always understood that to mean the devil wants to destroy you, to sift you like wheat, but God has prayed for you, so it's not going to happen. And yet when I go back to the story and study it, it's almost like the devil desires to sift you like wheat, and I said, okay. And while you're being tried, I'm praying for you, because Peter goes through one of the most horrendous trials that any person could ever experience. Could Peter be a New Testament Job? The Bible tells us that everyone who comes into this world is born under the power of the evil one. And Acts chapter 26 says the mission of the gospel and those who preach the gospel is that people might be turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, the God of this world, the devil, holds the people of this world under his control. And sometimes he's the one, not always, sometimes he's the one that brings about the disease and the infirmity that are keeping people held bound. Certainly spiritually so, he's holding them so none will hear the gospel. He's trying to keep them away from freedom in Christ. That's the work of the devil and we are bound not only in our sin but bound under the power of the evil one it seems to me that satan is still alive and well but he is on a chain or if you don't like that imagery because when we come to chapter uh, the book of revelation it talks about the devil being put on a chain um, some people say if he's on a chain now he's on a pretty long chain well, that could be. The point is, he's not free to do whatever he wants to do because God has put up limitations. Sometimes you say, man, I wish those limitations were a little more strict. I wish that hedge was still in place so the devil couldn't get through to me. Listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul said, there are some of those who stand against us. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would prove, so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Is it still happening in the New Testament? The Bible says it is. 
Some people under the control of the evil one. That's why when you witness to your neighbor, you have no hope of breaking them free unless God the Spirit sets them free. And when Christ sets them free, they'll be free indeed. You can share the good news with them, and you must, but it must be the work of the Spirit in their heart that breaks the chains. They must be set free from the bondage that they've been into, the bondage of the evil one and the bondage of death. Now I think I need to pause at this moment and remind you that we are not living in a perfect world. That's not a shocker, is it? Remember when God created this world, he created it good. His intention was for our blessing. At the end of every day of creation, he said, this is good. But something happened and it's called the fall of man, right? After creation, Adam and Eve sin, plunging the whole human race into sin and corrupting the world in which we live. So the system in which we live is not a perfect system. And you have to understand there is the revealed will of God. Get this. There is the revealed or desired will of God, what he wants. And then there is the permissive will of God, what he allows. Now you can step back and say God is sovereign and uh, all things happen. There are no accidents and that is true and his decrees will stand firm and that is also true. But in this system somehow the sovereign God allows us as free moral agents to make decisions. And he has a will for us. But we don't always follow that will. And there's a plan for this world, but we're off track. And you want to know why this world is so messed up? It's because the world has taken the wicked course. And we live in a fallen world. And that junk still touches us. And unbeknownst to us, for some divine reason, God allows bad things to happen to good people. In so many ways, the beautiful harmonies that God has designed for this creative world have become acrimonious and harsh and discordant. The world is unmistakably marked by beauty from creation and tainted by disorder and pain and struggle and corruption and sin. The world groans, the earth groans to be released and redeemed. So if you're a redeemed soul, you're living in an unredeemed world. And you can't expect to be held away from all its corruptions. By the way, this problem is only a problem for a Bible-believing Christian. This problem of suffering and God. Think about it. If you're a polytheist, there are many gods, and you just chalk up the bad things to the bad gods, right? If you're a fatalist or a naturalist or an atheist where you believe there is no supreme being, then you believe that it's, it's kismet, it's karma, it's fatalism, it's just the way it is. Que sera, sera. There's no loving powerful God over this so the way you explain bad things is it's random but if you're a bible oh by the way if you're a weak believer in God a liberal theologian 
you believe in a weak God. Back in 1981, there was a book that became a bestseller written by a rabbi. His name was Harold Kushner. Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was written because his young three-year-old son, Aaron, contracted a horrible, deadly disease and died. Rabbi Kushner said, the God I've been serving for so long, why did you allow this to happen? Especially to a little boy. Why did you allow this to happen to someone like me who's been serving you all his life? And this was his conclusion. God is good and compassionate, but not even God can be everywhere at once. The universe in which we live is random. God gives grace and comfort to to those who are suffering, but he can do nothing to prevent their suffering. Boy, there's no hope in that theology. But I say to you, our theology, the Bible theology, brings us face to face with a God who says to Satan, he's in your hands. And that's why suffering is so challenging. There's no sin involved in the life of Job. Let me be abundantly clear. God only had one son without sin, but he has no sons without trials. Every child of God goes through their own Job-like experience. And while this is an extreme situation of the very best person in the world experiencing the very worst that one could experience, we can see in our own lives the difficulties that we face, the trials. C.S. Lewis, who became a believer, great intellect and philosopher, In his book, The Grief Observed, said this. Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Now that's not his final thought on the subject, but it is what most of us experience in the midst of our greatest tribulations. Where's the comfort in all of this? Ask Job. Remember, he doesn't know that Satan's involved. He just knows that he's in big trouble. And so the Bible tells us that God gave a limitation. You can touch his life, but you've got to spare his life. By the way, when you study through the book of Job, this idea of skin for skin, later on in the book of Job, I think it's chapter 19, Job said, I survived by the skin of my teeth. Have you ever heard that phrase? It comes out of the book of Job. What does that mean? I came very close to death and was almost gone. So although God spares Job's life, he comes to the brink of death. That's how bad his tribulation was. Satan immediately goes from the presence of God and he afflicts Job with painful sores. They're painful and they're pervasive. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And Job is in agony now. So how do we respond when God sends trials our way? That's the question. How do we respond when we are tested? 
let me look at the good way to respond. And of course, this is the book of Job. Uh, so the main character, who is a godly man, responds in the right way. The first thing he does is to deal with the pain. Either Job was sent out to the ash heap by the health officials of the city. His situation had gotten so bad, and it's very difficult to describe exactly what he had. The details uh, prevent us from having an accurate diagnosis. But apparently there was some situation of acute dermatitis, one doctor said, that ended up developing infections and lesions that would just open up with infection. And so to deal with the pain and probably being sent out by the officials to the government dump outside the city, he finds in the dump a broken piece of pottery and begins to scrape his skin to deal with the pain. You've got to do something to deal with the pain. When you study the book of Job, you'll find out that he had... Because of his condition, later on, insomnia, nightmares, horrible bad breath, loss of weight, and his skin was blackened. Now he's a Middle Eastern individual who has nice, beautiful, olive-colored skin to begin with. But if you have lesions with infections and scabs all over your body that are open to bleeds, you can imagine how his person looked totally dark because of this horrible disease so the first thing he did was to deal with his pain before we get to the second thing that Job does I want to mention another one of Job's pains his wife now when you that's that doesn't mean that all wives are painful but the book of Proverbs does talk about some that are a challenge Like the drip, the drip, the drip. This is a wife that drips and drips. But she gives to us, in answer to the question, how do we respond to others when they're going through testing? She gives us the bad example. So the scripture tells us in verse 9 that his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Now, I think we have to say something. Uh, maybe a word of defense for this poor woman. We don't know much about her. She's been in the shadows. Now she comes into the limelight. She has lost her family as well. To bear ten children and lose them all in one fell swoop is unthinkable. She's got to be numb. And she must have been somewhat supportive of Job up to this point. After chapter 1, we don't hear anything negative. She's lost her standing as the first lady in the land. She's lost her wealth. Her whole world has been changed. So we've got to look at it from her standpoint that indeed she is undergoing a, a radical transformation in her own life experience. But her response is, curse God and die. By the way, the Hebrew word curse literally means bless. It's a, a euphemism. It's the opposite of what is being said. Either she is saying, why don't you 
curse God and die. Let's put the best possible spin on this. She sees that he has no hope, that he's definitely going to be dying soon. Why don't you make a, a, a short end of it and uh, just take your own life? And the best way to take your own life is to curse God and he'll kill you. So curse God, he'll kill you, and then you'll be out of your suffering. That's the best possible spin we can put on this. But it probably is the other. For all you've done for God, and this is what he does for you, serving him has brought you nothing. Why don't you, before you die, curse him? Let him have it. And that's what many people do in their suffering. It's time to let loose on God. Which reveals, doesn't make, doesn't create, reveals where their heart really is. They serve him for what they can get from him. And if he doesn't give them all the good things, then they have no time for God. Curse him and die. But Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. He didn't say she was a foolish woman. You're talking like one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, I'm done with God. That's foolish talk. This is what you would expect a fool to say. Shall we accept good, Job says, from God and not trouble? This sounds like the statement from chapter 1. Naked came I into the world, naked I'm going out. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. That's what Paul quotes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It is certain you brought nothing into this world and you are not going to take anything out. And now the statement is God gives us good and he has blessed us with much good, the early uh, verses of chapter 1 tell us that. And pre predominantly there have been good days for us. Shall we not accept trouble for him? He doesn't blame the terrorists. And he doesn't blame natural disasters. And he doesn't even blame Satan. Because he doesn't know how Satan has been involved. He says this has come from the hand of God. As we read last week. No second causes said Hudson Taylor. We take this from the hand of God. God allows this to happen. He allows bad things to happen to good people. There's some divine purpose beyond it all. And often we can't see it. Because God hasn't promised us explanations. He's promised us himself. That makes all the difference in the world. Well, as we go on in the story, it simply says in verse 10, in all of this, Job did not sin. Go back to how we ought to respond in our trials when God tests us. Number one, deal with your pain. That's a very human thing to do. Number two, trust God. Realize that God is still good. God is still on the throne. The very first prayer I learned as a kindergartner in a public school was God is great, God is good. Let us thank him. Actually, we're thanking him for kind of uh, poor milk and stale crackers. But anyhow, we were thanking him for what we were about to eat. That's great theology. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him. And then fill in the blank. Job did not 
sin. But how not to respond, that's the wife. By the way, it is also interesting when you study the book of Job that his family was alienated from him. In the middle of Job, chapter 19, and his family's not even mentioned earlier on except his wife, it says that God has alienated my brothers from me. My relatives have gone away from me. I'm loathsome to them. But in chapter 42, the brothers and sisters come back when Job is restored. So you've got a whole family that has left him, including his wife. But now this is how you ought to respond. And this may shock you that I say to you, the way to respond to someone who is suffering is like Job's three friends. You say, wait a minute, Job's three friends. <laughs> I thought they blew it. Well, at first they were really good. Job's an international uh, celebrity, so he has international friends. Eliphaz. Bildad, Zophar, from all different countries, all different nations. And when they hear about the troubles that Job is going through, they set out on a rather long journey from their country. They knew each other before, they were acquainted, and they got together by way of agreement to go see Job and to sympathize and commiserate and comfort him. Well done! So many of us don't see people in suffering around us. And when we hear about it, we do nothing. They heard and they responded and they made their way a good distance to see their good friend Job with the highest of motives to sympathize and to comfort. And so they sympathize. After traveling a good distance, they finally see him and they didn't recognize him. You can imagine how bad it was. It kind of sounds like Isaiah 52 when it talks about Jesus who was in no way comely or beautiful. There was nothing in him that we would desire him. He was grotesque in appearance and we turned and hid as it were our faces from him. They didn't recognize him and they began to weep. By the way, that's a good thing to do when you respond to people who are in the midst of trial and hurting. Weep with those who weep. It's a good response. So they hear about it, they don't ignore it. They travel a long distance. When they get there, they're shocked and they weep. And then they go through the proper etiquette of mourning, just like Job did in chapter 1. They rip their clothes and they sprinkle dust upon their heads, which is what they're supposed to do. And then they sit with him on the ground in the dump heap for seven days and seven nights. And during those seven days and seven nights, they say not a word. And this was their finest hour. <laughs> These three friends are going to talk from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 27. And they're going to destroy everything they built up at the end of chapter 2. But this is how you respond. This is called the silence the ministry of your silent presence. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God of all comfort, the God of all compassion, who comforts us in our sorrows so that we can then comfort others who are going through sorrows. 
The word comfort there means to come alongside. Here's the thing that God promises in all of our trials. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be there to help us through the situation. It is the ministry of the one who comes alongside. And that's what you and I need to do to people who are suffering. To come alongside. And when they are suffering and we see how great their suffering is. Sometimes you say nothing. Ben Patterson tells the story. Theologian Ben Patterson tells a story of the fact that he was jilted by the same girl twice. Engaged and then the engagement was broken twice. The second time he was devastated. He felt like he was dead. He went to see his friend and after talking a little bit he said I can't even talk about it. I just need to leave. So the friend said let's pray. So they bowed their heads and Ben started praying. He said the best theology he could for the moment what he thought God wanted to hear. He mumbled through a horrible prayer and then he stopped and then there was nothing. Nothing. It was time for his friend to pray the one he came to for help and the friend said nothing. And then he started crying. Ben said, why are you crying? He said, because it hurts so much. Ben said, what hurts so much? Your pain, you idiot. And Ben made an amazing statement. All he could do was say it hurts so much. And he wept when I could no longer weep. There have been few times in my life where people have comforted me like that. He didn't give me lessons or pointers. He simply gave me himself. And that's what I need. And that's what God needs. That's what God does in every one of our trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We go through the life of Job and we are once again shocked by how bad things can get. But help us, Lord, by your mercy and by your grace so that we might love you, that we might trust you. In the midst of pain, we'll weep, but still cling to you and say, shall we not accept both good and bad from the sovereign God who lives? Give us this perspective so that we can help others as they suffer. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.